This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the program. I trust we'll all get some benefit out of coming together today. If you've been with us before, you'll know that we're going through Nomkau Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, a commentary on another text titled Seven Points of Mind Training. We're learning how to generate the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the temporary and ultimate benefit of all beings, that is, the mind of bodhicitta. To develop that, we have to first focus on developing great love and great compassion. Now can you remember what the difference is between ordinary love and compassion and great love and compassion? Ordinarily, our love and compassion are directed to just a few beings, our relatives, our partner, kids, friends, pets, and so on. The focus of great love and compassion, on the other hand, is all beings everywhere. We try to view all beings as equal in needing our love and compassion, even if some of them treat us appallingly. The practice employed in the seven verses of mind training, and indeed in Tibetan Buddhism in general, is called Tonglen, or in English, giving and taking. As I've explained before, the giving relates to love and the taking refers to suffering, dissatisfaction and so on. In this exercise, we take on all the sufferings of others and give them all our happiness, from the greatest to the smallest. Now this is obviously not an exercise for the faint-hearted, and one is expected to develop a great determination and courage to go through with it. Now we covered the development of great love in earlier programs, and last week started on developing great compassion. In his introduction, Namkar Pal basically explained the benefits of great compassion with quotes from two sutras, the supplement to Nagarjuna's treatise on the Middle Way and a compendium of perfect doctrine. We saw how compassion is beneficial in the beginning of our practice as it is the necessary seed of Buddhahood, how it is beneficial in the middle of the practice as it helps to enthuse us, so we keep going, even if the practice becomes difficult or seemingly boring and meaningless. And finally, in the end, compassion blossoms into the full fruit of Buddhahood. We also took some commentary from His Holiness the, the Dalai Lama on compassion. He stated that although we try to love others, often our self-centered attitude gets in the way and spoils our intention and our action. We need a calm and peaceful mind based on a compassionate attitude to experience real happiness. And that, unfortunately, takes work. We can't just wish compassion into being. In defining compassion, His Holiness declares that true compassion is not mixed with desire or attachment and is not just an emotional response. It is based on reason, so that if someone behaves badly to us, we are able to take it in our stride and not get angry or upset. He says, Whether people are beautiful and friendly or unattractive and disruptive, ultimately they are human beings just like oneself. Like oneself, they want happiness and do not want suffering. Furthermore, their right to overcome suffering and be happy is equal to one's own. Now when you recognize that all beings are equal 
in both their desire for happiness and their right to obtain it, you automatically feel empathy and closeness for them. Through accustoming your mind to the sense of universal altruism, you develop a feeling of responsibility for others, the wish to help them actively overcome their problems. Nor is this wish selective. It applies equally to all. As long as they are human beings experiencing pleasure and pain just as you do, there is no logical basis to discriminate between them or to alter your concern for them if they behave negatively. Now this, of course, is easy to say but much harder to do. So His Holiness recommends first getting rid of anger and hatred, the greatest obstacles to developing this kind of compassion. He points out that anger and hatred are very rarely rational and their energy is unreliable, causing us to become crazy if we give it free rein. It is possible, however, to develop an equally forceful but far more controlled energy with which to handle difficult situations, His Holiness says. This controlled energy comes not only from a compassionate attitude but also from reason and patience. These are the most powerful antidotes to anger. He goes on to say that when a problem arises, we should therefore try to remain humble and maintain a sincere attitude and be concerned that the outcome is fair, while not allowing others to take advantage. We can take strong action, but it should always be motivated by compassion, realizing that in the long run, people who harm others are harming themselves much more. His Holiness says, In order to check your own selfish impulse to retaliate, you should recall your desire to practice compassion and assume responsibility for helping prevent the other person from suffering the consequences of his or her acts. Thus, because the measures you employ have been calmly chosen, they will be more effective, more accurate and more forceful. Retaliation based on the blind energy of anger seldom hits the target. And that is where we concluded last week's program. And now before we go on to consider the next section of Nampkapal's text, let's think about our motivation as we usually do. And as usual, how about making that motivation bodhicitta, the wish to gain enlightenment, to be of the greatest benefit we can to others, and especially to lead them to enlightenment. But if not that, at least liberation from suffering for oneself. So let's take a little time to think about motivation. Thank you. In the next part of Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, Namkar Pal takes this quote from the Seven Points of Mind Training. Giving and taking should be practiced alternately, and you should begin by taking from yourself. He then goes on to explain. So firstly, as it says, we should meditate on compassion by taking from sentient beings their sufferings and the cause of their sufferings. Begin by taking upon yourself all your own actions and disturbing emotions, and the sufferings that you will have to experience as a result in future lives, in any of the five or six states of, of existence. Imagine that these form black heaps, similar to trimmings of hair, upon your present mental and physical aggregates, and think that you are thereby freed from these sufferings and their causes in all future lives. Similarly, imagine that you accept the sufferings and sources of sufferings of tomorrow, the day after that, the coming months and years, and the rest of your life, upon your present temporary aggregates of today, this month and this year, 
and think that you thereby free yourself from all misery from tomorrow onwards. Tong Len means giving and taking. But we usually start this practice the other way around by first taking on our own and others' sufferings. During meditation, in the beginning, we imagine all the various sufferings of future lives we will have to undergo due to our karma. These include the sufferings of the hot and cold hells, the hungry ghost realms, the animal realm, the human realms and the azura and god realms. Well, the gods are said not to have much suffering at all, but it becomes excruciating for them when death time comes and they realize where they will be reborn. Generally, it will not be with all the pleasures and luxuries they became accustomed to, but in a much worse situation. So they are very distraught. In any case, we imagine all the sufferings we will experience in these realms are like piles of hair, and as we accept them into ourselves, they become impotent and can no longer cause suffering. The pile of hair image is not all that strange when we recognize that the original teachings were given to monks whose hair was closely cut every week or two weeks. They would have been quite familiar with mounds of their discarded hair lying about on the floor. So here, our negative deeds are lying around in our mind, each like one of those discarded hairs, just waiting for the time to manifest. But by consciously taking on those future sufferings, they become impotent to harm us in the future. And we don't only think of the sufferings of future lives. For sure we will have sufferings in this life also, from the slightest discomfort due to sitting too long in one position, to hearing we have terminal cancer. Look into your life up to now and see if you can honestly find any day in which you did not actually suffer at all, not even a single instant of discomfort. It's difficult, isn't it? So we imagine all those sufferings and take them into ourselves, imagining that thereby they become impotent of harming us in the f any further. From tomorrow onwards, none of these things or people will cause us any suffering. The text goes on now to explain taking on the suffering of others. It says, In taking all the sufferings of others upon yourself, you should not keep them in some inconspicuous place, but in your heart, since the very purpose of accepting them is to eradicate your self-centered attitude. Now the reason we are doing this exercise is to expand and strengthen our concern and compassion for others, which necessarily means less and less concern for oneself. So, as the text explains, we don't try to hide these sufferings away, but take them into our heart with a sincere wish to destroy the self-centered attitude that lives there. Actually, in a variation on this meditation, you visualize the self-centered attitude at your heart as a small but glowing ember. This is the selfish I that wants everything of the best for itself and doesn't give a damn about others or their needs. Like a spoiled child, it is always on the lookout for what will bring me happiness and not at all concerned whether others suffer or not. Robert Browning's poem, My Last Duchess, describes this eye-centric attitude perfectly. The Duke of Ferrara is talking to a representative of a count whose daughter the Duke is about to marry. Chillingly, this is how the Duke describes his previous wife. The poem is recited by James Mason, the actor. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. 
Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Will please you sit and look at her? I said Fra Pandolf by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed, as they would ask me if they durst, how such a glance came there. So not the first are you to turn and ask thus. Sir, twas not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the Duchess' cheek. Perhaps Fra Pandolf chanced to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whate'er she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, it was all one. My favourite, her breast, the drooping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace. All and each would draw from her alike the approving speech, or blush, at least. She thanked men. Good. But thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a nine hundred years old name with anybody's gift. Who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling? Even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one, and say, just this or that in you disgusts me, here you miss or there exceed the mark, and if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits two years forsooth and made excuse, e'en then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Will please you rise? We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the Count, your master's known munificence, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object. Nay, we'll go together, Doubter. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which Clouds of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. The Duchess was a beautiful and natural lady, obviously with a sunny and engaging disposition. But through an entitled egocentricity leading to jealousy, the Duke couldn't stand that she wasn't the perfect possession that would allow him to show her off as he did his other artistic possessions, like the bronze Neptune. So he did away with her. Horrifyingly, he is about to remarry and we are left to wonder what will irk him about his new bride that will lead to her quick demise? Now this might be quite a radical example of the self-centered and self-cherishing attitude. But it is this that is the burning amber at one's heart we spoke of earlier. 
We may not murder our spouses because they smile too generously, but we all have it to a certain degree, don't we? So, to whatever extent it occurs with us, we imagine this ember at our heart chakra and then visualize dumping all the negativities like hair trimmings onto it. After all, this very self-grasping and self-cherishing is the very cause for all our problems and difficulties. So it's fitting that if we do not want them, they are returned to the giver. Here, I don't want this, it's yours. Take it back. We then think that dumping the hair-trimming sufferings onto the ember of self-cherishing causes it to burn into flame and burn up, emitting light as it does so. This light of happiness and compassion which we send out becomes whatever beings need to be free from suffering and to gain happiness. Namkar Pao recommends starting with the hell beings. He says, as explained during the meditation on love, that's which the meditation that we've already done, you should accept all the originating and resultant sufferings of the denizens of hell at your heart, like heaps of black hair trimmings. Think that your selfish attitude is mellowed and subdued and that the denizens of hell are free of all sufferings without exception. In a similar way, take on the originating and resultant sufferings of the hungry spirits, animals and human beings of the four continents and the eight subcontinents, the six categories of gods of desire, such as the gods of the four great kings, the twelve categories of gods of form, from the Brahma family to the great result, and the beings of the four states of the formless realm, from all the worldly realms throughout the ten directions, no matter how many there are. Imagine that all these originating and resultant sufferings fall as if shaved off with a razor onto your heart, that your self-centered attitude is mellowed and subdued and that sentient beings are freed of all sufferings in their causes without exception. Likewise, apply the same mode of thought by taking on the miseries of the beings of the intermediate state. That's the state that beings inhabit between lives. Now this is quite stark advice, but it strikes me that taking on the suffering of others is not easy. Sometimes it is difficult enough to deal with our own present sufferings, never mind thinking about all our future sufferings and on top of that, the sufferings of all other beings. Just think how many beings there are just on this earth. And each one is suffering in some way or the other. How can one person take on all this and not be overwhelmed? It may seem like a hopeless task. In an article on the website of Lions Raw, that is www.lionsraw.com, three prominent Buddhist teachers give insight into a question about helplessness in the face of intense suffering. And this is how the question was framed. I've been a Buddhist for about 18 years, and while I feel I have an understanding and acceptance of the causes of personal suffering, I find it difficult to understand the causes of suffering when we suffer for others. Such suffering is not due to ignorance or attachment. It's raw pain when I see an animal beaten or a child abused or prisoners tortured. The suffering of others makes me feel so helpless. How can I accept this? Now the three teachers who answered were Narayan Helen Liebenson, a guiding teacher at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, Zenke Blanche Hartman, a former abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center, and Geshe Tenzin Wang Yal Rinpoche, a lineage holder of the Bon Dzogchen tradition of Tibet. Narayan Helen Liebenson 
answered with some questions of her own. How do we make sense of the immense suffering in this world? How do we bear it and help alleviate it without being overwhelmed by a sense of helplessness? These are the most human of questions. She then continues, I don't know that understanding the causes of the suffering of others changes anything for the better. What we do know is that everything happens because of conditions coming together. We can't know what all of those conditions may be in any given situation. But when it comes to the suffering of others, less analysis and more compassionate action may be the better approach. Compassion is caring for and responding to suffering. It is easy to fall into conditioned patterns of reactivity. We withdraw, become indifferent, get stuck in anger or lost in fear, allow a sense of powerlessness to control us. Our practice is to see that sometimes situations do seem hopeless, and yet at the same time to summon up the courage and heartfulness to do our best to make them otherwise. I remember being surprised when I first learned that the Buddha had defined compassion as a trembling of the heart and a pleasant sense of care. Until then, I'd always thought that compassion meant to suffer with. The Buddha's words helped me to see that being compassionate means being vulnerable and yet very strong. To me, a trembling of the heart means encouraging our hearts to stay open in the face of suffering. And a pleasant sense of care implies confidence and capability, the ability to hold the distress of others in such a way as to be effective in our efforts to help. Feelings of helplessness and powerlessness are normal and human, and as we come to understand suffering as well as the end of suffering, we tap into the ways in which we are really not helpless at all. I'm not sure you want to accept the suffering you see around you as much as to try to alleviate it. The fact that you can't tolerate it points to a tender heart. This tenderness needs to be balanced with a sense of confidence so that you can respond wisely and skillfully rather than becoming paralyzed and frozen. Where do we begin? Recognizing and opening to our own pain allows us to open to the pain of others without being overwhelmed. Also, it's important to remember that the practice is to see not only the agonies that afflict us, but the strengths we have as well. In other words, to see that which is not suffering. To know this in oneself allows one to know it in others. Thus, we are training ourselves to have faith in the true nature of all beings, not to think of others with pity and a sense of separation. When we practice in this way, something remarkable may happen, at least at times. We may want to stay open to this possibility. When we think of someone like Nelson Mandela, we think of the horrors he experienced as well as how profoundly inspiring he has been. Somehow, he was able to sustain his faith and compassion in the midst of truly terrible conditions and to come out of these conditions transformed and with great love. Perhaps we all have such untaped cap capabilities. That was Narayan Helen Liebenson. Then it was the turn of Zenke Blanche Hartman. She says, The pain you speak of when you witness the suffering of others is what we mean when we speak of compassion, to suffer with. It is a natural feeling because of the inherent connection of all beings. And what a cruel world we might live in if we did not have the capacity for compassion. Like the Buddha, you may have been working on this question since you were a child. As a child, 
he went to watch the spring celebration of the first ploughing of the fields to prepare for planting. And during the colourful celebratory festival in which his father ceremoniously made the first furrow, the young Siddhartha noticed that the plough cut through the underground homes of the insects and worms and exposed them to the birds who then ate them. Even today, as we consciously make an effort to live the life of no harm, we discover that we cannot literally follow the first precept of not killing. We must either starve ourselves or eat food that has been alive. Even if we are strict vegetarians, the life of living beings can only be supported by food that has itself been alive. The important work for us, then, is to remain aware of our intrinsic connection with all beings and to continuously cultivate our capacity for the beneficial mental states of loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. How we actually live this precious life we've been given is the most important point. Although we may fervently wish to end all pain in the world, as many before us have wished, the best way we may be able to do is not to add to it. If we add judgment and anger to the situation, it can only increase the suffering. My latest inspiration for how to live is this quotation attributed to the Dalai Lama. Every day, think as you wake up. Today I am fortunate to have woken up. I am alive. I have a precious human life. I am not going to waste it. I am going to use all my energies to develop myself, to expand my heart out to others for the benefit of all beings. Finally, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche started out by saying that the suffering we feel on encountering another's pain starts out being connected to the root causes of ignorance, attachment or anger. He says, suffering is always connected to a sense of self and to attachment. However, the pain that you feel for others can be transformed into the path of liberation. In fact, experiencing the pain of another's suffering is necessary for the development of compassion, and compassion is necessary for liberation. The cultivation of compassion is based on empathy or the ability to feel the suffering of others. If you cannot feel the suffering of others, you cannot cultivate compassion. Rather than simply feeling helpless when you experience the suffering of others, let that moment be an opportunity to cultivate bodhicitta, to rouse the sincere desire to attain a liberation from the three poisons in order to truly benefit others. This motivation is no small thing. Even though you may not see how compassion directly affects another's suffering in an immediate or obvious way, it is always possible that because of compassion, something shifts energetically towards the situation. Clearly, something shifts in oneself. Sometimes we are overwhelmed with the amount of suffering we perceive in the world around us and we shut down, contract or turn away. But it is important to stay open-hearted in connection to the suffering we experience. When we allow ourselves to fully experience the sensations and emotions that are present within us when we are touched by others, these very feelings become the doorway to compassion. Compassion arises spontaneously from our, from our own open awareness. Feeling our pain directly releases the bondage of helplessness and reveals the pure and open space of being which is the very source of compassion within us. In this way, instead of perpetuating suffering, we become part of the solution. Thinking I cannot do anything is a way of solidifying or reinforcing the sense of I and other, which perpetuates the illusion of duality. We must understand the value and power of compassion and know that feeling pain 
is itself a great practice. And that is where we must leave it for today. Lots to think about. Thanks for being with the program today and please tune in again next week. Please dedicate, as we usually do, to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.